Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. My guest today is Robert Cialdini, professor of psychology at Arizona State University and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion. And there is a new and expanded version that's being released this week. Professor Cialdini's book has had an enormous impact on those of us in the value investing community. In fact, when Charlie Munger first read the book, he was so impressed and he benefited so much from the principles in the book, he personally reached out to Cialdini to express his appreciation and being Charlie, he went above and beyond. I asked Cialdini to tell this story about his interaction with Charlie Munger early in the interview and you won't want to miss it. In this episode, we talk about the principles of influence and Cialdini weaves in stories and examples from Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway and Jeff Bezos at Amazon. And Cialdini explains the psychology of why people say yes and how to apply these insights ethically in business and life. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Robert as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Robert Cialdini. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Robert Cialdini, welcome to The Good Life. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be with you. I'm really excited about the topic today. We're going to talk about your book, Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion. And it's got a new and expanded version that is just released. It's been a bestseller, an international bestseller. I don't know how many weeks it's spent on the New York Times bestseller list, but it's just been a classic. And I first read about your book when I was reading Poor Charlie's Almanac. Charlie Munger has always been a hero of mine, uh, being a value investor in Warren Buffett. And he really sung your praises in that book. I had not heard of Influence before, but he said he found it extremely useful. It opened up a world of understanding and meaning for him as far as psychology. And he said it's the book that he gives out most often to his family and friends. So I wanted to start with your relationship with Charlie and Warren Buffett and how that came about and how they've used your book and some of your teachings over the years to improve their ability to influence. Well, it started one morning when I went to my mailbox and found an envelope that I didn't recognize. I opened it to find a share, an A share of Berkshire stock and a note from Charlie Munger that said, you don't know me, but your book has been so important to us here at Berkshire and made us so much money that by your first principle of influence, reciprocation, you're entitled to this share for what you've done. That, at that time, I think it was seventy dollars to $75,000 a share. It's now almost $400,000. And I was, of course, uh, awestruck and wrote to thank him. And as a result, we have had a relationship uh, ever since. I uh, attend his dinners at the Berkshire meetings every year and am continue to be uh, awestruck by the acuity of his mind. Of course, it's the case that he's rated the book highly. So is Warren, by the way, among his top five all-time books. And this is the sort of thing that ha has kept me floating on a cloud ever since. That's a great story. And you weave in a few stories about Buffett and Munger in this new version of the book, which I absolutely love. And and one of them is the letter in 2015 that Warren Buffett wrote to his shareholders, which many consider to be one of his best letters. And it's the letter that he looks back on the first 50 years of Berkshire Hathaway, of he and Charlie taking over the company and running the company. And then he also looks to the future. And um, you talk about a very interesting powerful technique that Warren used during that letter that you recognize as being an extremely powerful kind of influential technique. And it has to do with your principle of unity. I don't know if you, if you recall that, but can you talk about that letter? I certainly recall it. And I was struck by it. One of the great things about receiving that, uh, that, that share 
of stock is I also receive shareholders letters every year and I see how Warren presents his case about the way to invest in Berkshire. And what struck me is that not only is this man a brilliant investor, he's a brilliant communicator about how to be a brilliant investigator. He tells us ways in which to do it with humor and grace and so on. And anyway, in the 2015 letter, it was the 50th anniversary of Berkshire. And he not only looked back on the success, but he wanted to look forward and convince us that this Berkshire bulwark of strengths and people and, uh, and vision was going to continue into the future. And so he went about doing that, but before he did, he said something that just opened me up to everything he next said in a way that even I wasn't as receptive to. And that is, he said, I'm gonna tell, the next thing I'm gonna tell you is what I would say to my family if they asked me about the future of Berkshire. And that was so compelling to me, to be allowed into the boundaries of his family. This is the principle of unity that I I talk about, which says that inside the boundaries of the we, the concept of who people consider to be of them, Everything is easier inside the influence process. We trust those people. We want to cooperate with we, those people. We, we believe them. We comply with their requests and recommendations and so on. And he did that. He did that with that one word. He brought me inside the boundaries of his we group. And I was, there is no way I wouldn't believe the next thing he said to me. He did something that I call persuasion. That is, he made me receptive to his message before I received it. Before I knew what was in it, I was aligned with it because of the way he had structured my mindset prior to the delivery of that message. It was brilliant. Yeah, he really laid the foundation for that later persuasion. And he did something else, which you wrote about in the book. Well, you you mentioned he approaches these letters and almost every communication with honesty, humility, humor. But right before he said that he's going to tell you something that he would tell his family, he admitted that if he had been asked 50 years earlier to predict what was going to happen in the next 50 years, that whatever prediction he had was going to be off the mark. If he was to be put to that test. So he sort of admits through humility that yep. I'm not, I'm magic. I'm, I can't predict right. everything about the future, but then he hits you with the family and that's what got it, right? So there's kind of yeah. a dual thing going on there. <laughs> that's right. So he told us something that, look, I make mistakes. And what that did is to enhance his trustworthiness. He said, look, I'm not going to claim that I'm magic. I'm not going to claim that I'm 100% right. I make mistakes, which immediately gives you a sense that this guy is being straight with us. The next thing you hear is likely to be honest. He's being honest with us right from the start that he's he makes mistakes too. And now there's the aura of honesty associated with it. And then he adds the aura of family it was the one-two punch. <laughs> it was a knockout. <laughs> yeah. And there's just so many examples in the letters and in the way both Charlie and Warren communicate that really rely on many of the principles that you lay out. And I, I'd like to to get into a few of those. So let's talk about the book, Influence. Maybe you could give my listeners just a, an introduction to what you're trying to achieve with the book and how it's organized and that sort of thing so we can kind of get into some of these principles. It's organized around seven universal principles of persuasion, which I claim, if you include into a request or proposal or recommendation, significantly increase the likelihood of assent to it 
to that request proposal or recommendation. Now, likelihood is the right word again, because just like <laughs> Warren, this isn't magic. This is behavioral science. It's not magic. You'll never get 100% of 100% of the people, but you will alter the odds significantly in your favor if you include one or another of these elements of persuasion, universal principles that move people toward assent. So each chapter highlights one of the seven principles. So let's go through a few of them. And I think the first one you mentioned is reciprocity. This idea of if I give you something, you would then feel compelled to maybe give me something. And it doesn't have to be a gift. It could be knowledge. It could be anything. Yeah. And you mentioned that this one, it's I'm guessing it's upfront because it is so powerful. You reinforced how overwhelming this one can be. And one thing I love about the book is you open our eyes to these elements and principles as a way to improve our own ability to persuade others. But you also open our eyes to be aware of the fraudsters out there and the promoters and people that may be using these principles against us. So let's talk about reciprocity. So... It is the principle, by the way, that is taught in every human culture. There's no human society that fails to train this rule into their members. So every one of us will have been subjected to training in this rule that says, I am obligated to give back to you the form of behavior that you first give to me. You invite me to a party, I should invite you to one of mine. You remember my birthday with a gift, I should remember yours. And if you do me a favor, I owe you a favor. And I'll say very simply, in the context of obligation, people say yes to those they owe. The implication is, when you go into a room full of people, uh, you know, maybe a, a business meeting or a reception before the meeting be- starts or a coffee uh, break, and you look around, you should not be looking at people to answer the question, who can help me here? The question you should be looking to answer is, whom can I help here? Whose circumstances can I advance? Whose outcomes can I better by what I have to offer, the information or resources or background or experience or whatever it is? You will now have established an ally who will be standing on the balls of his or her feet, eager to help you, leaning toward the opportunities that you might offer for them to be of assistance to you. So here's a little study that I I like to talk about. Done in Southern California, a candy shop. One week, for half of the customers who came into the shop, the manager met them at the door greeted them warmly, and then escorted them to the candy counter, right, where they could choose their selections. That was half. The other half, he greeted warmly and gave each one a small piece of chocolate and then escorted them to the candy counter. Those people were 42% more likely to buy candy. Now, you might say, oh, well, maybe they just liked the chocolate and they wanted to buy some. If you look into the data... The majority of them didn't buy chocolate. They bought other candy. Even though chocolate didn't sweep them off their feet, it wasn't what they had received. It was that they had received that caused them then to increase this person's profits by 42%. Yeah, and that doesn't surprise me because I've seen it again and again in my own life. Uh, You mentioned that it's a universal principle. You even mentioned it's in the Magna Carta, it's in the Bible. If you just go back in history, it just seems to be, there's evolutionary reasons for why we would uh, behave this way. You talk about something called click run in the book, and I, I really like that term. Maybe you could describe it because I think what's happening when you hand the chocolate over, there's a little click run. Click is the sense of obligation or gratitude that immediately flows right from that. Run is the program now that that has been installed in you that says, and now it's my turn to give. I have to balance the scales. I have to give back. And if I don't have an immediate chance, 
I'll hold on to that. And when that person comes to me later, I'm still obligated to help. And so we can stockpile these kinds of, of chits, essentially. We've got these, these obligations. We've got these debts that people will want to repay to us because the saddle of obligation weighs heavy on us. We want, we want to give back to those who have given to us. Otherwise, we're considered moochers or takers or ingrates if we don't. None of those terms do we want uh, applied to ourselves. You mentioned in the book that one of the ways you did research, and maybe this was years ago when you did the first version, but you enrolled in programs, sometimes sales training programs, other programs to just understand the techniques people are using to persuade. And I, I just, I found that really fascinating because as an academic, most academics wouldn't go there, but you went right to the source. Can you talk up a little bit about that and what you learned from that? Yes, that's, that was maybe the most important research decision I've ever made in my life, to move away from the laboratory investigation of the principles of influence and how people are persuaded, using college students for the most part as my subjects in rigorous experiments where everything was controlled except the one thing I was looking at and into the world where there was a much grander experiment being conducted every day than I could conceivably have generated myself. And that is, people whose business it is to get others to say yes to them have to use strategies that work, otherwise they're out of business. They're gone. So, the strategies that have emerged and evolved and stayed in the repertoires of compliance and influence professionals must be the ones that work wherever they are employed. Otherwise, they wouldn't be employed in any regular way. So I decided the real informants I needed to check in with on this were the people whose business it is to get others to say yes to them. Salespeople, marketers, advertisers, recruiters, fundraisers, and so on. And what I did was to answer ads for trainees. And I would enter their training programs incognito. They didn't know my identity, didn't know my intent, and learn from the masters what worked to get people to say yes and shift wealth from one person to another, right? Shift resources from one person to another. This wasn't check marks on a seven-point scale that I was doing in my laboratory. No, no. This was the exchange of funds. You can't deny the power associated with that. And so, for two and a half years, entering as many of these programs in as many different domains as I could, not just sales, but what I found was there were only a very few principles of influence. I've called them seven universal principles now that all of these individual organizations and industries were employing to move people into assent. And that's what made the, the basis of the book. I love that story. And you tell a little vignette in there about you needed to influence these yeah. companies after you revealed, hey, I'm actually a university professor, I'm writing a book. You, so, you had to then influence these influencers to get their consent to, to sign off on the book. And how you did that was really interesting. I think it revealed one of the, uh, one of the principles, as I recall. Yeah, so that's, that's right. Even though I was able to collect that information, I was not able because of professional responsibility and, and the ethics of it, just to use their information, just to take it and use it in my book without their approval. So how do I get their approval? Because this is information most of them want to hold on to. They don't want all their proprietary secrets to be given to their competitors, right? And I was asking them to allow me to use what I'd learned from them about them in this book I was writing. And I thought, okay, well, I'll use the principle of reciprocity. I said to them, no matter what you say to me now, 
I'm going to ask you for this, and I'm going to provide whatever your answer is for your time. I'm going to provide an early copy of this book, a pre-publication copy, so you'll be able to see what I learned, not just from you, but from all of the various influence professions and organizations that I have infiltrated. So I'll give that to you. And I was hoping they would say, okay, and then we will give you this permission. And I thought for some of them, I was getting sort of nods, but others, I was still getting frowns and head wags. No, this doesn't sound like right, because all the gain is going to go to you and all the pain will come to us. All the cost will be ours. We'd lose our proprietary information. But then I said, and you know, this book I'm writing is one I needed to write to hear you tell me. I'm a professor at a university, and my research area is influence and persuasion, and I want to learn from you what really works. And that changed everything, Sean. They said, wait a minute, you mean you're a university professor whose expertise is influence and persuasion, and we're your teachers? And I said, yes. And they puffed up their chests, and they waved their hands, and I said, of course you can use the information we have mastered. Wow, so so powerful. Just those words, I want to learn from you on this. And, yeah. and that just changed the whole demeanor, their whole approach. It, it did, because I put them in the role of teacher. So you're, you're our student, we're your teacher. Well, what, what does a teacher do? A teacher doesn't hoard information. A teacher distributes information. A teacher provides information broadly. So to be consistent with the role of teacher they were now willing to say yes. And I got 100% compliance. That's amazing. Uh, and speaking of hoarding information or hoarding in general, there's also this principle of scarcity that is a very powerful principle when it comes to influence. And yeah, maybe you could talk about scarcity and how we might harness that. Certainly. People want more of those things they can have less of. So anything that is scarce or rare or dwindling in availability becomes more attractive as a consequence and it makes people a little crazy honestly to have that thing that they can't have you know this acronym fomo fear of missing out that's exactly what's going on so if you have anything that is limited in availability or there's a limited time that you have to access this object or idea or initiative that you have and they don't that they will lose out they will this thing will be the ultimate scarcity it means they can't have it at all now so they go a little crazy for this and people will often ask me well what if i have a a big supply of whatever i have to offer what could i do under those circumstances and the answer of course is what is it about what you have, your idea, what feature of your product or idea, what suite of features of what you are offering, no one else can provide. You are the sole provider of that particular combination or that particular strength or that differentiator. That's what you raise to consciousness in the people so that they know that if they don't move in your direction, they lose it. Yeah, this is one that we see often when the new iPhone comes out, people are lining up at the Apple store. If you own a nightclub, you would love to see that line outside and to make it very you know, scarce to get into the club and, yeah. and so forth. There's also this element, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be a product because we don't want to lose out. We don't want to lose. Uh, we don't like loss. Right. And I love the story you told about the divorce lawyer friend of yours who just yeah. made a little change in the way that she phrased something. And that's another thing I love about your book is just little phrases, little things that we do different can make a huge difference in how we're able to persuade others. 
John, that's that's the thing that hooked me on all this information, on how small changes you can make in your persuasive approach produce big outcome differences as a result. And here's the one that you're talking about. Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize in economics for his prospect theory, claims that the prospects of losing something are much more motivating in human psychology than the prospects of gaining that very same thing. Because loss is the ultimate form of scarcity, right? You, you can't have it anymore. Okay, well, I have a friend who's an, a divorce attorney, but she's also a mediator. Very often, in order to avoid a court date, partners, divorcing partners, will bring in a mediator who negotiates between them the features of the separation agreement. Okay, she does that, and she's found that you have to put people in separate rooms in her offices. She puts them in separate rooms because in the same room, bedlam ensues, right? When they're together and glaring at each other and, and start uh, hurling insults. So separate rooms with their people, usually a, a financial person or a, a, an attorney and so on. And she shuttles between the two rooms, transmitting offers from the other side and trying to find some sort of middle ground. And she says very often they get stuck on a last feature of the deal and they just can't get around it. And it sometimes just torpedoes the whole process. And they wind up going to court because they can't get agreement on this last feature. And I asked her, so Sandy, what do you say when you bring the last one one partner's last offer on this feature. And she says, I say to them, if you will agree to this, we will have a deal. Right? So I said, try something else. Going in and saying, we have a deal. All you have to do is agree to this thing. And the difference is, now they have something they are about to lose unless they move in that direction. Versus you don't have something that you will, you will gain provided you do this thing. Right? And Daniel Kahneman has already shown us loss is twice as mobilizing psychologically into action for people as gain. So I asked her to use this. A few months later, I saw her at a party. She came up to me, big smile, Bob, she said, I, I can't, she said, I can't tell you how great this, it works every time. I said, come on, Sandy, it couldn't work every time. She put her hand on my arm. She said, Bob, every time. Okay, <laughs> so I'll believe her. I still don't believe these things work every time. But in this particular instance, that's what happened. Well, it's, it reminds me of a story that's in Chris Voss's book, I believe, Never Split the Difference. I heard him tell it on a podcast, but you know, Chris Voss is an expert on negotiation. And when he's dealing with two parties that are about ready to go to court, you know, they've similar to the story of the people that are getting divorced, they're kind of at their wits end. They've they've gone back and forth. They can't agree. And maybe it's even broken down so one side is not even willing to get back to the negotiating table. And the way he gets them back to the table is he, he sends an email or maybe it's a message by phone, but it's something like, have you given up on resolving this amicably? Oh, very nice. Just phrases it like that. And all of a sudden, people come back to the table because it's framed as a loss. Yeah. The resolution, he gives them the resolution. Have you given up on the resolution, which means they will lose the, the resolution? That's great. Here's another thing that I think that does that I really like. Another one of the principles of influence is commitment and consistency. People want to be consistent with the commitments they've made, the beliefs that they've established, the behaviors that they've performed, and the promises, and so on. You want to be consistent with those. And especially you want to be consistent with your values, how you view yourself. Nobody wants to be seen as a quitter. It's not consistent with the way people view themselves, right? Or prefer to view themselves. So if, you, if you're giving up, you're a quitter. That was really, I, I have to... It's brilliant. Chris actually blurbed my book. It gave me a very 
nice uh, uh, testimonial, I'm going to have to write them and tell them so. Yeah, ask him about that one. I can't remember if it's in the book, but I know he told it in a, in a podcast talking about the book. But let's talk about commitment and consistency, because that is another one of the principles that you outlined, and it's a very powerful one. And, and the story that really stood out for me there was Jeff Bezos and Amazon and offering employees, I guess the program's called Pay to Quit, on an annual basis, offering employees in their warehouse, which you know a lot of people are making minimum wage, just over minimum wage, but offering them $5,000 each year to quit. Why would he ever want to do that? That doesn't seem to make business sense. Well, if you listen closely to what he says about it, he sends them a memo every year with this pay to quit deal and says, if you want to separate, we will pay you up to $5,000 to do so but I hope you won't take this offer. And then he provides the reasons why they should stay. Now, here's what he's gotten these folks to do, because very few of them, a minimized number of people actually quit. He's gotten people to say, I don't want to quit, even though there's $5,000 in the offing. They go on record as saying, no, I want to stay. That's a commitment. And now people are going to be consistent with the commitment of valuing their employment at Amazon. That's what I think he's done with that. Yeah, it's very powerful. And higher commitment leads to higher productivity. And I'm assuming higher satisfaction because people want to be there. They've convinced themselves they want to be there. They're acting consistently with their past behavior. All of these things sort of snowball into a more productive, happier employee in a better workplace and a better culture. You're exactly right. The research shows organizational commitment is one of the most powerful predictors of productivity, positive attitude, and longevity. Now, we have to be careful about this one, too, as investors. You mentioned people that bet on horse racing, that after they place a bet, they have more confidence that the bet is going to pay off, if I think I have that right. And that's also consistent. They want to be consistent because they put the money down, right? But the odds haven't changed. Exactly right. So what we have to do, and this is one of the things I do at the end of every chapter, is a defense section, how to defend yourself against these principles when they're used against you in an unwelcome or undue way, or even when they're used by you in a way that's likely to steer you in the wrong direction. If we're knowledgeable about the commitment and consistency principle, we have to recognize that because we've taken a stand, let's say made an investment in a particular instrument, that doesn't make it better. It's going to make you want it to be a better choice than it actually is, but it doesn't make it better. What you want to do is step back from that situation and separate the choice that you made from the merits of the thing. And then once again, go back in and dive into the merits alone. That will give you a more even-handed view that's not biased by the fact that you made the choice for it and want it to be a better outcome for that reason. Yeah, this is one that investors have to be really, I don't want to say careful, but it really helps to understand where you are in being persuaded by commitment in any given situation. And I'll give you an example. A lot of investors like to write up and put out there to the public the case for investing in a certain, say, company or stock. And they often are along that stock or they're invested in that company. And they go out and they publicly say, here's why I invested in it. And now if information comes up after the fact that might lead them to want to sell or have a different perspective, they have to be very careful about the the pull of the consistency and commitment because of what they've done in the past. Great investors are going to need to, like you said, separate themselves from that, but it's really hard to do. It's really hard to do, but that's the reason people hold on to positions much longer than all the objective evidence suggests they should. One reason why Buffett stands out, I mean, 
he's not just good at buying and holding, but if something changes, he will exit. If things change, even though he's going to be inconsistent with what he said in the past, I think his investment in airline stocks is a great one. He was had a basket of the major airlines, was a fairly significant holding in Berkshire Hathaway. When the pandemic hit, he sold. And people could not believe how quickly he sold, even though it was down. Well, you know why I think that's the case? It has to do with something you raised when we were talking about his 2015 shareholder letter. Remember, he said, I've made a lot of mistakes in the past. He owns his mistakes. He brings his mistakes to top of consciousness. So he knows that just because I did this in the past doesn't mean it's right. I need to move away from that because I make mistakes too. Yeah, it's a great point. And another way that he influences his shareholders and also becomes a better investor. Let's talk about uh, this idea of unity. This is the new principle that it's in this book that wasn't in the previous version, right? Uh, So talk a little bit about unity. Where did it come from? Why was it maybe missed in the first version or has it emerged? Or where did your thinking process come around unity? I started seeing research showing that how a person identifies him or herself, the kind of groups that that person uses to say the word we to refer to, ethnicity, family, race, nationality, political party, religious affiliation, those things, those social identities often create willingness to say yes to others who can convince you that they too are inside those boundaries of that of those groups if i were to say to the people inside my we group you know sean is like us that's not enough but if i would say sean is one of us sean is of us everything becomes easier for you now to convince us to move in a direction there's a lovely little study that i like to talk about it's uh, a few years ago some researchers did a study on college campuses where they had a young woman asking passers-by who were walking on paths through campus to donate to the united way and she was getting some contributions but if she preceded that request with one sentence she more than doubled her donations it was, I'm a student here too. In other words, I'm of you. I'm one of you. And down came the barriers. And substantially more than twice. It's almost twice, two and a half times as many donations as a consequence. Again, I'm always amazed at the slight turn of phrase, the, the inclusion of one or two words to make such a big difference in our approach, our psychology, the way that we are open to uh, ideas and being persuaded. Sean, let's expand on that for a minute, because I think it is so important. How could it be that such small little tweaks could have such big effects? We typically believe in the law of proportionality. Things that produce big effects require big changes. No, here's what is true. Things that produce big effects can be small changes in our presentation that hook to big tendencies inside of us, like unity, like commitment and consistency, like obligation, like scarcity. So you can do a, just make a, a wording change that brings one or another of those concepts to mind, and you've now clicked the program that runs. Click run. Yeah, you've tapped into this deeply human, probably evolutionary, biologically driven behavioral process that when we hear click, we run. And if you can tap into that, it's it's like getting the wind at your sails. Right. And it's like, you know, if you were at a stadium uh, before the game, a night game, there's somebody down below in the bowels of the stadium who flicks a switch and all the lights come on. It took nothing, no effort, no conscious cleverness to flip the switch, but that switch 
then energized the whole lighting system of the place. It empowered the next moment. So I like looking at people like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger that are using these persuasive elements and principles in a positive way to further their business and be more effective. It's also educational to look at the flip side of that. Munger often says invert. So if I inverted Buffett, you might bring up Bernie Madoff, who was someone who ran really a Ponzi scheme. He wasn't really an investor. He was um, a fraudulent investor. And it's interesting that many of the techniques that Madoff had built into his scheme were also aligned with these principles. Yes. For example, scarcity. You weren't allowed in unless you had an invitation from one of the people who was already in. Authority. He is another one of the principles. And he had acquired this aura of authority, somebody very knowledgeable about the markets and derivatives and so on that he was using supposedly. But he also had unity. And that is a lot of the people who invested with him were Jewish. He was Jewish. And the people who were inside the, the program were Jewish, even his lieutenants who were out and uh, recruited. So again, inside that we group, the barriers to influence come down. And you were right to say it was a Ponzi scheme. I don't mean that this is true for Jewish <laughs> population. Charles Ponzi, I, I'm Italian, right? Was an Italian American immigrant into the United States in the early 1900s who built other Italian-American immigrants of millions of dollars through this Ponzi scheme. It works for all kinds of affinity groups, right? Baptists. It works for Baptists. You know, you find these various uh, scam artists working because they know that inside the we groups, people drop their guards. Yeah. In every we group and every affinity group in the United States, there's there's a history of an unscrupulous character that's taken advantage of that group in some way using these principles. That would be my guess. Right. I recently came across an offer by Kevin Kelly. I don't know if you're familiar with Kevin Kelly. He's an author, a former editor of Wired, but he has started a Kickstarter campaign to finance his book, which looks like an amazing book. It's a, it's, but it's a very expensive book. It, it costs a lot of money to produce. It's called Vanishing Asia. And he's taken all these pictures of Asia over his 40-year career of traveling in Asia. And they're just beautiful. And he started the campaign to raise some funds. But what I noticed about the campaign that I wanted to share with you is he had various price levels. So one price was $200 and another one was $300, another was $500 and $1,000. Now, granted, you're getting the same book for whatever price you pay. But here's the thing. At the $200 level, he only opened up I want to say 500 offers at that level. And then he put a counter on that offer Mm -hmm. so that as you're looking at the campaign, you could Uh, see, oh, there's only 400 400 of the 500 offers for the $200 price are already taken. So there's only 100 left. And once that's gone, you're going to have to pay 300. And I thought, I happened to see this as I was reading your book. So I had to bring this up and just get your thoughts on how many, he's coming at this from so many different angles. He's got several of your principles working in his favor here. The biggest is scarcity. That is, look, you're about to lose access to the $200 level unless you move now, right? And you're in competition with everybody else to have these few available slots uh, at the 200. You know what this reminds me of? I happen to know some people at booking.com. It's that online site where you can book hotels and flights and so on, mostly hotels. And they use the six principles of influence. They've become the biggest such reservation site in the world. And one thing that they told me was when they first started to include exactly what you said, only four more rooms available at this price, at this hotel or only two more left and there are six people online looking at this right their sales unit sent a letter uh, sent a message to their technology unit and said the system's broken 
there's something wrong because we're getting so many. <laughs> this can't be true. It's more than multiple times anything we've ever done before. And the answer is no, there wasn't anything broken. They had harnessed this powerful principle of human behavior. Now that you mentioned that, I've recently seen that on Alaska Airlines because I travel on Alaska, but I really haven't traveled much in the last year because of the pandemic. But I recently got on to do a trip and I noticed that when I went to book my seat, it said only two seats left at this price or something like that, which of course the scarcity was element principle was at work there. But it also made me think, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. Are they telling me the truth? Because if they're not, they're losing some credibility. And that's part of influence too. Right. So, in fact, the Booking.com, which is uh, based in the Netherlands, has received criticism for this. And their defense is, it's true. We were informing people into assent here. Suppose it had been... There was only one left, and we didn't tell you there was only one left at that price. And then you thought about it for a while and came back, and they said, sorry, it's out. There was only one left. You might say, what? Why didn't you tell me? That was the truth. So my view of how to use these principles ethically is when you can point to something that truly exists in the situation. There really is scarcity. There really is authority testimonials favoring our product. There really is, whatever the principle is, if you simply point to it, not only is that ethically acceptable, I think it's ethically commendable because you're informing people into assent. You're educating them, not tricking them. If, however, it's phony. So, for example, Best Buy Employees at Best Buy were caught using a scheme where if somebody was looking at a particular item in their store, they would say, but it's our last one. And after that person left, they'd go to the storeroom and put another one on the shelf. That's the unethical use. It's the fabrication of this scarcity principle or the counterfeiting of a scarcity circumstance that really leads us into the ethical depths of irresponsible behavior. You know what else is revealing about that story is at booking.com when they revealed, when they uncovered the information, when they made it transparent, it changed behavior. And a lot of businesses hide that information. They protect it. And you have a great story in your book about Netflix. For many years, they really didn't release any of the information about who was watching what movie, what was the most popular movies. And then they switched. They totally did an about face on that and it changed the metrics. Maybe you could talk about that. Yeah, it it has to do with the principle of social proof. The idea that if a lot of other people are moving in a particular direction, especially if they're people like me, that's a good sign that I should move in that direction too, uh, because it reduces my uncertainty that that that's probably a good choice. I mean, if everybody's raving about a new piece of software or a new film uh, around me, then probably that's a good choice for me too. Okay, so what Netflix was doing is refusing to tell anyone what their most popular shows were and their most popular offerings because they didn't want their competitors to know this. It was all very inside baseball kind of thing for them. And then they found that when they did let people know, their customers, which were the most popular items, especially for people who have seen the kinds of films that you have seen, right? People just like you, their profits skyrocketed. And so now they've completely changed and are transparent about all of the information about their most popular choices. Bob, as we close the interview, I wanted to ask you what advice you might give listeners to harness these elements, you know, in a positive way, but defend themselves against these elements when there's a, an unscrupulous character or a fraudster trying to manipulate us. Besides, of course, reading the book, which I highly recommend. What else do you recommend to people when they ask you, you know, 
well, what can I do to get better at influence and use these principles? Yeah, uh, I think if you do know what these principles are, you can be sensitive to their presentation inside an offer or an interaction that you have where something is being proposed to you. If you see that at work, uh-oh, there's scarcity here. I need to step back from the situation and decide on the basis of the merits. Uh-oh, there's another principle is liking principle. We, we tend to say yes to the people that we, we like, right? Well, wait a minute. I like this person too much for the just for the 45 minutes I've been dealing with him. Wait, I need to step back and once again judge the options solely on the merits of the case, not this emotional reaction to the person who is presenting the case to me. Because you're going to be owning that thing, not that person <laughs> after the purchase. So what you want to be sure that you're, 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 you're focused on is the thing that will become part of your uh, portfolio, not the person who, sent, who sold it. Yeah, the car salesman isn't going to become your best friend, but you're going to be living with, living with that car for a while and that payment, right? That's right. You're, you're driving the, that Toyota off the lot, not Brad. <laughs> yeah, good point. Well, Bob, this has just been a wonderful conversation. Where can people find out more about what you're working on today and when can people get the the new and improved version of Influence at well, Amazon? The new and improved version is now available on uh, you know Barnes & Noble or Amazon. Uh, so people can get it there. But if they want more information about what we provide and also more information about the influence process, we have a, a website. It's influenceatwork.com. All one word, influenceatwork, no, no spaces.com. Great. Bob, thank you for being on The Good Life. I enjoyed it, I have to say. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.